Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. Our Tartan Talk series has turned drinking age. Yes, we've made it to number 21 in our series with American Society of Golf Course Architects members, and we're proud to have Lester George on this podcast. Lester has done a variety of projects on courses at many different levels and in many different places. So we're excited to have Lester with us. But before we get going with Lester, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a great supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts and initiatives, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad that Better Billy Bunker is continuing to support this podcast. And we're glad that Lester was able to take some time to join us. Well, Lester, it's great to finally get you on the podcast. We're actually recording this the Monday of Masters Week. We're both going to Augusta National. Later this week, the first thing I want to ask you, Lester, is somebody like you, a golf course architect that has a lot of friends and connections in the business, what do you go to the Masters thinking, and what are those three or four days like for you? I always go thinking that it's 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 another chance to come out of the spring and, and, and visit Augusta, which is one of my favorite courses, and obviously get some warmth <laughs> and uh, figure out how to stay warm. We've, we've had a, a tough winter here, but uh, I, I look for uh, not as much time as on the course as a lot of people. I mean, I'll walk around and, and, and make my rounds and look at the things I want to see, especially some of the changes that might have been made. Uh, but in those terms, I'm really down there to meet and greet people and see clients and anybody that I can, and we arrange to try to find each other during the week like a lot of people do but i'm not a real uh uh sit by the ropes for in one position guy much i'm more of a, a rover for those that don't know lester's based in virginia and you've been in virginia for a long time and spent part of your childhood there lester what has it meant to you to kind of have a career based in a place where you have so many good memories and know a lot of people Virginia is the place that my dad was raised, and, and even though we spent all of our childhood uh, going around with him in the military, uh, when I got a chance to come back to Virginia uh, to go to college uh, at University of Richmond, and I decided to, to stay here, and it's, it's my home, and we're situated here. We have family here, and, and it's, it's, it's a great place to, to own a business, to run a business. Uh, being in the Mid-Atlantic, it means you can get to a lot of places fairly easily uh some of my colleagues in the ASGCA you know they live in more remote places and they they have to travel but uh and all of us travel now but Virginia's my home and 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 likely always will be you've worked a lot in Virginia and I I think a lot of people talk about the Carolinas when they talk about golf on the east coast but Virginia is a fascinating place Lester what are some of the different projects you've done in that that state and you have coastal settings and you have inland settings and you have mountain settings so really there's a lot of geological diversity in your, your home state we do we have a uh, as, as much diversity as I think any state in the in the mid-atlantic um, you know we have the beach and I've just finishing up a, a restoration second restoration of Charles Banks Golf Course in Virginia Beach, Cavalier Golf and Yacht Club. Um, we've worked on the coast. We've worked up the rivers and in the Chesapeake Bay region. We've worked, obviously, Richmond with Kinlock and other great clubs in Richmond, uh, Country Club of Virginia, uh, Willow Oaks, some of those. And, and of course, uh, one of our flagship courses other than Kinlock, is Ballyhack out in the Roanoke Valley, in the Shenandoah Valley near Roanoke, and 
we've done a lot of work out there. We've done Southwest Virginia with a new renovation we just did at the Hill in Blacksburg, uh, home of the Hokies. And so we, we've done a lot of things in Virginia because we're, that's where we are. Uh, but we've done a lot of things outside of Virginia. I mean, especially the Ocean City, Maryland, uh, all the way up to Maine and all the way down to Florida. So it's, it's, it's easy to get in and out of, uh, Richmond and get places, uh, for the most part. So we, uh, we really like the diversity of the terrain in Virginia, but, uh, in this business, as you know, uh, you go where it takes you. So we've, we've seen a lot of different terrain, a lot of different places. Speaking of that, one of the unique things about your portfolio is just the different types of projects you've done. It seems like you've done projects in every possible hole combination. You've done a lot of practice facilities. You've done everything from first T-type facilities to elite private clubs. How important has that versatility been in your career, and how important is it just for anyone working in the golf business in general to, to have versatility? I think I think it is. It, it's certainly what has put us on the map. Um, we, we aren't pigeonholed into a certain style or type because of all the restoration and renovation we've done on historic and classical courses. Uh, but more importantly, we've, we've thought outside the box. We've always taken opportunities that we thought were, you know, to, to grow the game and to help the game. And we were very instrumental and very fortunate here in Richmond to be part of the startup of the First Tee program nationally. Uh, the Life Skills Program was written here in Richmond by Dr. Steve Danish. Um, some of the first big donors in the country were here in Richmond. Uh, we've built three First Tee facilities here in Richmond. Um, so we've done a lot of things in, in those regards. In fact, my first time ever at Augusta was because I was doing a presentation for the World Golf Council on Wednesday of the Masters, and it was a First Tee presentation. So we were down there to show them a 21-hole course we had designed, 18 plus three tot holes, uh, for the kids here in Chesterfield County. And uh, it was just in the formative part of, you know, when First Tee was just getting started. So we've done a lot of that, practice facilities. We've done a bunch of college practice facilities, University of Richmond, VCU, uh, James Madison, Old Dominion, all of those practice facilities we've done for universities. So we've We've kind of gotten a, a little niche in the practice facility business. Kenlock Golf Club being voted at one point the number one practice facility in the United States uh, kind of launched us into doing a lot of those, and we still do a lot of those. In fact, we're seeing a lot of those those things right now. Uh, so it's 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 been you know what you pursue and what you get done is is I think a foundation for what you're going to get asked to do in the future. So we've done uh, everything from resort to military to municipal to private to public and everything in between. You kind of saw the value in practice facilities maybe before a lot of other people did in the golf business. What convinced you a decade ago or even more than a decade ago to, to put time and emphasis into improving those? Well, I, I got my degree in education, so I was, I was uh, kind of a teacher at heart. And uh, I watched PGA professionals and, and what they had to teach with and how they were teaching. And I just sometimes thought that there was probably a better facility for them to have more interactive and more coachable teaching uh, where they actually could teach and learn and watch students learn and let students practice. And so I, I guess I was intrigued by 
how practice was being conducted and, and how teaching was being productive, uh, conducted. I'm not a, I'm not a PGA professional, and, and, uh, but I, I thought that they were, they were better served with better facilities. So sometime uh, back in the late 90s, I started looking at practice facilities and have done quite a few of them. I don't know how many I've done, but um, it, it's it's always driven by the client and the client's needs. So you know, we're working on about three of them right now, and we have a, a steady inflow of them. I also go around the country with the uh, PGA Magazine, which owns the Golf Range Association of America, and do a PGA boot camp for design and construction of practice facilities. I do two or three of those a year, so we've kind of gotten our brand out there with that as well. Lester, almost every superintendent I talk to says the practice facility they, they manage and maintain isn't big enough. Mm-hmm. We're here in 2018. In your mind, what's a sufficient practice facility in 2018? You know, I'm not sure I can tell you in terms of square footage of size. It seems to me like the bigger and bigger we build them, the more and more they get used. So it's almost like uh, a cause and effect. But they aren't very big. I mean, at, at Kenlock, our, our, our main practice tee is over 60,000 square feet, and uh, we wear it out every year, and we don't, do, we don't do that many rounds. So people are hitting balls at a rate like we've never seen before. It started about 10 or 15 years ago. Um, there are people who spend more time sometimes on the range than they do actually playing. So in terms of short game facilities, wedge ranges, and even your main practice tee, I mean, it just seems like people are vested in practice and they want to learn the game and they sometimes only have an hour, so they'll go out and hit balls rather than try and play three, six, or nine. Um, and it's, it's, just, it's just taken off, if you will. Um, and there's a whole industry in practice. And so I, I don't know that, uh, you know, we've seen these gargantuan ones that are built at resorts, and, uh, you know, we've done those. But uh, for the normal club or normal daily fee golf course, you've got to have at least thirty or 40,000 square feet of, of main tee and then probably another acre to an acre and a half minimum for your short game area. What's the f- fulfillment like designing a practice facility that, that works for a client? How does that satisfaction compare to maybe designing a, a golf course? Well, for me, it started, you know, a lot with first tee and watching the, the kids and, and seeing the little, little ones out there and, and, and watching them have fun. And uh, that, that, the fulfillment for me was, was getting, getting kids into the life skills program, which is almost as important as hitting the golf ball and watching them go through the first tee thing. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of first tee. I've, I think I've designed 11 first tees and probably built seven but to me that's the fulfillment is to watch people get satisfaction out of practice so anytime you can provide a client with the facility from which they can teach and actually see results and get results i mean i think it's just good for the game and i think a lot of the ASGCA uh, members are, are in the same boat the ones that have concentrated and do build practice facilities, they get the same feeling, I'm sure, that I do, which is it's just like leaving behind a good golf course, leaving behind a good practice facility, and then watching it, you know, mature and, and be used the way it was designed. Uh, and then look forward to, if, it, if in the future it needs to change, be flexible enough to make sure that you can change it and you have room to, to do things differently. So, you know, that's the, the thing with me is, is making it 
actionable, making it, making it something that can be used, not something that's just out there looking like a, a, a pretty picture. I mean, I want it to be used. The rise of the first tee kind of coincided with the golf boom. What convinced you to get involved in so many first tee projects early on? There were a lot of new course opportunities out, out at that time. What convinced you to put so much time and energy in the first tee, and how, how has that helped you? I had a wonderful first tee board in, in Richmond with some very, very philanthropic people, uh, namely Fred Tattersall, who's one of the top in the country. I mean, he he just took this thing and ran with it. Uh, he truly believed in in all of the in all of the objectives of First Tee, and you know he wanted to build a downtown site and a county site, and then he wanted to build a site that could be used for the First Tee National Championship. The Par Three National Championship is is here in Richmond at a site that we built. He funds the, or our first tee chapter here in Richmond and Fred fund the, the Kansas State thing every year where two children from each state first tee are taken to Kansas State to the Earl Woods Golf Center there. And so we've been connected to it and we've just had, it's, it's just been wonderful to watch it grow. I mean, we, we, we certify about three or 4,000 kids a year as far as I know, in first tee. I'm off the board now, but back then when I was on the board, uh, we, were, we were putting them through there pretty fast. And it was, it was really, really interesting to watch these donors and these people who gener- you know, generously gave their time and money to this program. And I, all I was doing was try to, trying to design something that kids would enjoy. And, and, uh, and it, it was just invigorating to watch the watch the thing grow i just rebuilt one of my first tee facilities as i opened 14 15 years ago i just rebuilt that and converted it our downtown thing to uh it's still a first tee facility but we share it now we we put it back together so vcu could use it virginia commonwealth could use it as a as a practice facility three short holes three longer holes which are all par threes but it's dedicated certain times and days. It's dedicated to VCU, and lo and behold, they won the A10 championship this year. The first year they had a practice facility, so it's worked out. And uh, I've I've just always felt like giving back um, to the kids. Uh, it's just it just makes me happy inside, and and I think a lot of people here in Richmond have been leaders in that in that effort, and and uh, I've been fortunate to be part of. Our office in Cleveland is five minutes from a first tee facility, so we go up there a lot during lunch to practice and after work sometimes to play. I've always wondered this when I've been up there. When you're sitting down and designing a course for people that have maybe never picked up a golf club or never saw a golf course, what goes through your mind and how do you make it a a functioning facility for the number of beginners that come to it? The way we approached it was make it, we wanted to make it so that it wasn't so penal that it it discouraged people. So there's less bunkers. There's there's more forward tees. There's sometimes holes as short as 50 yards. Anything to not discourage growth in the game. I mean, we, we do have bunkers on our golf course, and we do have the one we built here in Chesterfield County, the, the big one. Um, we made that. It's about 4,700 yards long from the back, but an adult can go out there, an experienced adult golfer can go out there, and the, the hazards are all set up for the adults, not the kids. And the way we approached it was 
case an adult wants to go out here and overpower a 4,700-yard golf course, let's make it interesting for them. Let's make it let's make it so that it's it's not just a boring walk. But if a child's out here trying to learn to play, or a first timer's out there trying to learn to play, let's not beat them up with putting bunkers everywhere where they might hit it. So you go through that exercise because at the end of the day, you want it to be fun for everybody. And once they find the proper tee, enjoy the game and go out and play. We, in in the case of that first tee, uh, we made the children once they were <clears throat> certified in all the life skills and had done all their there are things that they needed to be certified. We made them members. And if you wanted to play on Saturday or Sunday, you had to play with a member. So if you were an adult going down there to play, you had to play with a kid. It's really good. I mean, it's a real good community program, and, and we've got guys that are getting, you know, 75, 78, 80 years old. They still go out there and play, and the golf course is just perfectly long enough for them, and they love playing with the kids. So it's it's, it's a pretty good pretty good setup. So I think design-wise, what you do is make sure that it's interesting and fun uh, for everybody. Not a lot of contours in the greens, not a lot of deep bunkers, um, not a lot of hazards in terms of, you know, wetlands or lakes or whatever, even though those are out there. It's not a, it's it's not programmed for that. So you just make it so that everybody can find their way around the golf course and hit the shots that they can hit. It's it's pretty much standard design practice when you're designing for people who haven't played a lot. Let's shift to your own beginnings in golf, Lester. You grew up in a military family. Tell our listeners that maybe don't know your story how you got involved in golf. Uh, my father was a, was a pretty good player. Uh, he was an Air Force pilot. First time I was ever on a golf course in my life was in Japan at Kasumi Gaseki. He was president of Kasumi Gaseki, which is where they're going to hold the 2020 Olympic play. Uh, so that'll be a, a fun thing for me. Uh, and I figured out after walking around with him out there a lot that somebody had to lay that out. And it would always intrigue me how, uh, how you know, why people were hitting it, where they were hitting it, and and the intrigue of that. Although I didn't pick up the game, um, I played other sports. I didn't pick up the game till I was a senior in high school. My dad's last duty station was in New Jersey, and uh, he and I would go out and play nine or eighteen holes, maybe two times a week. And um, that was right before I went to college. And I went to college, I put it down again, and really got into it when I went into the military. Uh, my first tour of duty was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and uh, I ended up playing a lot of golf with Orville Moody's relatives. They were all golf professionals out there at Fort Sill, and there were a bunch of pros and family, and got to know them and got eaten alive with it like I guess all of us do at some point in our career. So I was playing a lot of times a week and got to be where I was confident <laughs> at playing the game, and uh, when I moved back to Virginia finally and was taking a, a career path in computer science, I decided at one point I just decided I had to be a golf course architect. I had a lot of obvious training in, in terrain analysis and map reading and even did the the old Dr. McKenzie thing where I was uh, uh, an infantry tactics instructor at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And uh, part of what I taught was camouflage. And so... I just got to a point where I thought, this is what's going to make me happy. 
uh, and I pursued it and somehow got a, a, a chance to apprentice. And sometime in 1989 or 90, I hung my own shingle. And uh, the the rest is the rest. I mean, it's it's been um, it's it's been a journey, and it's 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 uh, it's a lifelong passion. And I I still get really jazzed to get up and go to work every day, especially those days where you get to create, where you're sitting at a drawing table and you're actually drawing. I mean, a lot of us get bogged down in the business aspect of 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 what we're doing, but I'm fortunate in that. I have a wife and daughter that work here, and they do their thing. And my daughter does IT and PR and and media relations. And my wife runs a company, so I, I get to I get I get freed up to draw. I just decided one day that's what I should do, and got the opportunity to do it, and took it. Looking back on it, how did your own military involvement and your father's military involvement how how has that helped you seeing so many different landforms and getting to spend time in so many different places growing up different climate zones and and different vegetations i mean i'm not a landscape architect by trade but i but i am a guy that's been a lot of time in the field uh i was a field artillery officer so i had to do a lot of range estimation i had to do a lot of terrain evaluation i had to do a lot of maneuvering uh through terrain so it's it's kind of that application that brought me into it um I could read topo and I could see. I could see in 3D. Um, I understand. Uh, I have apparently an ability to see topo uh, really well and understand it. And I've done it at all different scales and all different places around the world. So my thing was it's being very visual and understanding the, the movement of the ground and understanding, you know, how things could be set up so that a hole could play in a natural kind of a setting. And that's kind of what I think we're known for is, you know, not disturbing a lot of earth, but also, you know, making sure things work when you're finished, which is, you know, part of architecture. So my thing has always been uh, more of a visual and an a understanding of, of landforms and basically looking beyond the, the tree line and into the tree line and, Whatever happens to be there, still being able to figure it all out without, you know, having to spend a lot of effort moving dirt. Of course, some 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 sites don't give you that. Some sites are so flat you have to do something to make the the water move. But uh, we've had those too. But it, I think that's helped our diversity is being around uh, many many different kinds of terrain locations and and climates. Is there a part of the world you've been to, or a part of the United States you've been to, where there's not a golf course, and you're just thinking, dang, that's ideal terrain and land for a golf course? Well, obviously the Sand Hills uh, comes to mind uh, in Nebraska. That is, uh, like, one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen. Uh, I, there are some coastal opportunities that I still think, believe, you know, exist on the East Coast. Um, hopefully we're going to get a chance to do one in the Chesapeake Bay region here in the next few years that kind of demonstrates some of that. There's some maritime forest that I think runs, you know, between southern Virginia and all the way down into the, into North Carolina, um, that those duned areas like Corolla and, and Nags Head and, and Virginia Beach, they have some of those places. Those are awful good areas. I, I am completely 
convinced that there are some great areas out west uh, in in the Black Hills and places that are normally considered not great places for anything other than grazing and pasture land, but there's some phenomenal landforms out there. Um, I still think there's some some great landforms in the Gulf Gulf region between Florida and Texas uh, that have terrain diversity, but also soil diversity. So, I mean, there for somebody that spends as much time looking at things uh, for, on Google Earth and looking at at sites from airplanes and you know seeing the country, I, yeah, there's there's still a, an abundance of types of golf courses out there that that I think can be built. Uh, you know, I I also think there's an opportunity in the next 20 years to uh, expand on what we've been doing with brownfield uh, landfills, quarries, sand pits. Uh, all of those kinds of things all come to mind when you start talking about diversity in golf. But, it, I mean, obviously you've got to, with golf being more of a commerce-driven game than ever right now and has to be, you know, a bottom line, you got to, you can't just go out in the middle of nowhere and build them and expect people can get there, even though people have done that and it has worked, but it's 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 a limited market, so you've got to be careful where you put them, but... You know, I think the Sand Hills taught us all a lesson, which was if it's good enough, people will come to it. And Sutton Bay is the same way. I mean, that is just in South Dakota. Those kind of landforms just have to be pursued by, by, by our industry, and we have to figure out how to use them because that model of travel golf uh, and destination golf, I think, is, is important in the, in the future. But it's, it's going to be driven by sites. I think the sites are out there, and I think there are some undiscovered sites that are out there. Hopefully we get a chance to to work on some of them here in the future. Yeah, speaking of challenging sites, you've had a few projects where you have been able to take a environmental negative and turn it into a giant positive. Explain some of those sites where you've worked, where you've done that work, and what were those processes like? Probably the the worst lemons to lemonade was a, a site in, in Norfolk, Virginia called Lambert's Point. Lambert's Point was a was a landfill that had operated inside the city of Norfolk for I'm going to say 30 or 40 years. Uh, it was closed some years back. Uh, it was degrading, uh, degraded, and degrading. It was right on the Elizabeth River, and therefore wave action was pounding on the edge of it, and and wasn't stable. Uh, so the the city of Norfolk wanted to figure out something to do with it and they put out an RFP and we responded and we got chosen to build um, a golf course on it that golf course turned into Lambert's Point Golf Course uh, owned by the city uh, nine holes uh, on two little spits of land that are separated by the wastewater treatment facility (laughs) so it's very industrial, and it's it's uh, it, it, it was just a mess. I mean, it wasn't even, I don't think, considered to be a good closure of that landfill. So there was there was trash blowing off off the surface and coming off the waves. Anyway, now it's all armored on the edges. It's stable. We, you know, there's very few trees on it, obviously, uh, and it's a it's a big high. Uh, 
centered piece of property, but it was it was terrible. I mean, there was everything in that landfill from we found an an eighteen foot ski boat <laughs> buried in the ground. Uh we found, you know, car parts, we found industrial debris. It was mostly inert. Uh but there was some garbage and so it was just a bad site. And so they, they invested the money, we built the golf course. That's the one that became the ODU practice facility. I don't know how much longer it'll be there because I think the the waste the waste treatment facility might want to take it over here in a few years, uh, uh, maybe ten years. But it's been a, a real a real good project to possibly clean up the environment, stabilize the shoreline, fix erosion, and provide a recreational activity for a lot of people who didn't have one. Uh, there was no public golf course in Norfolk, I don't think, that uh, that provided. Um, that kind of activity so that was one um, we got to work at Langley Air Force Base after Hurricane Isabel uh, basically flooded that with seawater and whatever year that that storm was and that Langley Air Force Base was um, challenging because it was one of the first bombing ranges in this country it was one of the first pieces of property deeded to the Army Air Corps and so when that Hurricane Isabel hit, uh, it apparently percolated some things up to the surface, and we were working on what was part part of the old bombing range and landfill. And we ended up starting with bombs all over the site when the the storm cleared. So we we had to extract about 17,000 of them out of the golf course to put in the irrigation system. (laughs) Were any of them active? Some of them were still viable. Uh, most of them were blown up in place. Uh, we would, they would, the EOD people would detonate them in piles. And you know, once the the primary charge was set, you'd hear the secondary ones going off. So some of them were still real. Yes, they were still viable. And some of them were 75 years old, old, you know, from back the beginning of world war one uh it was it was crazy uh, all the way up to some vietnam era 500 pound high explosive bombs uh, which we uncovered both beside the sixth screen anyway <laughs> they they weren't blown up in place they were they were carted off but all of that taking place within about a thousand meters of the the flight line, which is where the first fighter wing is, the F-22 Raptor, and that's the, you know, that's the, those are the guys that guard Washington, D.C., and the president, so we couldn't blow up a lot of those kinds of things, but it was, it was very interesting, because I basically had to do a Doppler on the whole property, a ground radar, and figure out where all these things were, and the depth, and once we figured that out, we had to clean them out, then we could build a golf course. After we got all that cleaned up, we were finishing up the course, and there was a fire truck buried under the ninth fairway. <laughs> so we, we didn't have any money left in our budget to extract it, so we just went ahead and built <laughs> built over top of it, coated it with about eight feet of fill, and went on. So we've had some some unusual landfill activity, but we've had other diverse sites. I mean, we've built down on, in in the Chesapeake Bay region in in uh, Williamsburg and like I said Virginia Beach and and I think I think all of those kinds of things they add to your to your experience they certainly 
make you understand how certain things are going to are going to work and how you've got to move things. And I, and I have a very good team of people around me, engineers, uh, land planners, uh, all kinds of people who help us when we're, depending on what the client's needs are, whether it's residential, whether it's resort, whether it's standalone golf. I mean, I've got a lot of good people that have worked with us for the past 30 years in helping us get through some of those those activities. So, In my mind, every golf course has an amazing construction and architectural story. I guess what I'm getting at, is there such thing as a normal project in the world of a golf course architect, or do they all have their abnormalities and twists to them? They all have their idiosyncrasies. They all have their constraints. They all have their weird, unforeseen things, especially new courses. I mean, you just don't know what you're going to run into. Uh, One of the courses that I built in Williamsburg, we had 44 archaeological sites, uh, seven that required phase two investigation. Uh, and it was mostly Indian activity. So we would find a, an Indian pipe, or, or or we didn't find any graves on that particular site, but I found graves on other sites. And so now you get into graves registration and some of the things you have to do on those. And There's always something, and any architect that, that's done this long enough can tell you stories about that. So normal... Um, I think with some of the environmental regulations that we've seen in the past 20 years, I, I don't think there's much normal left. Even the ones that look like they should be less complicated than they are can turn up things that you just don't expect. I mean, like burial grounds or, um, you know, environmentally sensitive uh, plants or environmentally sensitive species. All of a sudden, those when you do those inventories and you find them, or historic resources. Sometimes you'll find a foundation of a house that no one knew might have been on that property, but in fact has been looking for. So there's, you know, there's always there's always the the historic aspect, which I find fascinating. I've always tried to preserve those kinds of things, and we we've done we've done well with avoiding a lot of those things. But now there's no normal sites anymore. I mean there. Are, Every architect in the ASGCA could tell you stories of, of extreme conditions that they've had to encounter. We've, we've certainly had our share, I can tell you. Golf course architecture is like sales in a lot of ways. You're always trying to develop relationships with people and get some work or get people to buy into your vision. How do you handle the business side of what you do? You mentioned your wife and daughter are involved. What is it like also operating your own business on top of the design things you have to think about on a daily basis? For me, I mean, we again, we try not to be stereotyped into any kind of, of, of pigeonhole. We don't want to be, well, he did this one and this one and this one, and that's his style. I mean, I, I believe that I've done so many different kinds of bunkers, so many different kinds of routing, so many different kinds of sites that um, – that I'm one of those people that is kind of a chameleon. I mean, I don't have a style. I just kind of try to fit the owner's vision and the owner's needs into the landform of the architecture. So, I mean, if it's if it's something, if the owner says, I'm a, I'm a traditional guy and I like old-timey courses and I like these kinds of things, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of this guy or that guy or this guy. Can you fashion that into that? Certainly we give those things some consideration. We all want to be left with a free palette on a new course. So I've done many different styles, but 
have also renovated many different styles. So running the business, the business is client services. It's like any other client service business. I mean, you have clients who, I've had clients who've never built a golf course and don't necessarily even play golf. But they knew they needed a golf course to do what they were trying to do. And then we have sophisticated clients who've done a lot of developments who come in and say, you know, we saw this portion, we saw this course of yours, or we saw something you did over here, and it intrigued us. Can you can you help us? And or we have a difficult site. Can you help us? So it's it's just like any other professional services corporation. You basically try to make sure that you're providing the service and the and the results to your client that help his bottom line or achieve his goal, whatever it may be, uh, whether it's golf first and something else second or something else first and golf second. So it, it is a business. And the, the thing that, the thing that uh, most people don't realize when they tee it up on the first hole and they're out there enjoying a round of golf with their friends or, or clients or work colleagues is that there's so much stuff that went into going, getting that thing out of the ground, grown in, develop that the, and that's that's the part of the that's the part of the business that is we want it to be something that is not necessarily noticed obviously we want it to be an enjoyable enriching experience to play golf but there's so much that goes into bringing a golf course out of the ground the business end of of, of golf is kind of like what what's the comment somebody said you know you don't want to watch people make sausage you want to you want to enjoy the end product, but you don't want to see how it's done. So, golf it's a it's a very tough business. Uh, has been made tougher by the recession, um, and so we like to think that we go into it with a with a a process of making sure that we understand our clients and that our our clients ultimately can get out of it what they what they need to get out of it from a business end. And then, from an enjoyment end, we want to we want to we want that to be left up to our experience and our education and and our 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 passion for designing fun, playable, beautiful settings. Not too many guys in the ASGCA need any help with that. Uh, they they've got that part. It's the business piece that is it's challenging. And so, my success has been able to make people understand that I understand what they're what they're trying to achieve and that we get it on paper and we make it work and then we get it through a process of permitting and we make that work and then we get it constructed and we make that work and then we get it in operation and we make that work so the business end is is probably a lot more complicated than the end user realizes but it's probably sometimes more complicated than the developer realizes it's, I think, wading through that minefield of all of the things that have to go on in the construction and deliverance of a golf course is just, that's the business end, and that's the part that takes a long time. It's, uh, it's you got to be patient, and you got to, you got to, you know, you just got to have a, a lot of experience and understand which things, you know, you're going to have to make sure work on each project because they're all different. If you were to go back a few decades, and maybe told someone that you were going to build a golf course for kids or a golf course on a landfill, I think there would be a lot of skeptics and people that would say, hey, those, those concepts would never 
work? In your mind, what is something that you think will be pushed in the next decade or two? And what are some things that maybe we view as constraints now that might not be constraints in a few decades from now? Uh, I think what we're going to see for a long time is efficient golf courses, ones that are that have a, a design for a particular level of pace of play. Uh, people's uh, time is carved up differently than it was 25 years ago, and, it, and I think it's getting to a point where people say, you know, I love golf, love to take my kids out there, don't have four and a half hours. So I think you're going to see a lot of three and six and nine hole courses built. Uh, I think you're going to see even some 12 hole courses built. I think you're going to see repurposing of some clubs that can't sustain themselves at 18 holes be cut to nine. We're seeing that already a little bit. I'm building a 12-hole golf course, uh, or I'm getting ready. I hope to build one at a resort that I'm doing, where it's it's um, basically for the hotel uh, activity. For that 12-hole golf course will take you can play three, six, nine, or 12 holes. So I think you're going to see a lot of alternative kinds of of courses. You're gonna you're gonna see things that are that are more family and user friendly. I think family golf is 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 taking off. This next generation of, of people travel more in a pack, and they they do things together more. Where where we we used to go off and do things that we wanted to do with with or without the family, but I think that's it's going to be more family driven. Uh, I think you're going to see it's got to have to be economical. Uh, it's 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 going to have to be a game that's affordable. You know, all of those things are going to drive I think golf in the future. Even even the the highest levels of golf, there has to be some consideration for those pace of play, sustainability, playability, fun. Those things are the things that are going to drive golf. You never saw that back when I got in the game. It was all mostly residentially driven uh, activity and resort-driven activity and daily feed. I mean, it was just there was just something going up on every corner. I think the opportunities that are also going to be out there are to use and reclaim some of these these brown fields, uh, whether they be landfills or, like I was saying earlier, um, reclamation of sand mines or reclamation of mineral pits. I think you, you you're seeing it with Streamsong and some of those places where they're just taking old degraded sites and looking at them differently. I think those sites are going to become more and more available because we need to we need to restore those sites into something that's viable. So I, I think you're going to see landfills, quarries, uh, any kind of any kind of uh, you know degraded site is going to could be considered for uh, a golf site. Well, Esther. I really appreciate you taking so much time to talk to me, and thanks a lot for everything you've done for the the game of golf. You certainly have a fascinating background and have worked on a lot of fascinating places and done a lot of different things, so we really appreciate you taking the time. And well, Guy, we, we feel the same about you guys and, and your, your publication, and we just we want to we make sure that we're all growing the game. And I am one of those guys that is – uh, absolutely lucky to get to do what he does uh, and and 
I love what I do. So, I mean, it's one of those things where I, I, I get to do it, and uh, there's there's no amount I couldn't give to the game, I hope. So thank you for your support and everything you guys do, and we appreciate all, all of uh, your efforts.